Welcome to the EAST CareerCast, brought to you from the EAST section of Career Development. I am Jamie Coleman from Indiana University. In this session, we are pleased to have Dr. Ben Zarzar here with us to discuss how to get clinical research off the ground. Dr. Zarzar is an Associate Professor of Surgery at Indiana University. He is also the founder and director of CORES, the Center for Outcomes Research in Surgery, which is a multidisciplinary team of surgeons, researchers, and support staff performing patient-centered outcomes research. He truly sets the bar for academic productivity with 89 attributed publications. Dr. Zarzar has been an active member of EAST since 2006 and currently serves on the Annual Scientific Assembly Section, the Nominating Committee, as well as the Co-Chair of the Multicenter Trials Section. Dr. Zarzar, thank you for sitting down with us today on a topic that is applicable for so many people, really at any stage in their career. For the medical student and junior resident members of our audience, what is quote-unquote clinical research? Could you explain a little bit about the different areas that this broad term encompasses? Sure. Um, you know, first, I just want to you know, thank you for inviting me to do this, uh, number one. And number two, you know, whenever you always hear somebody introduce you, it always sounds like I wonder, always wonder who that person is because uh, <laughs> I can't imagine it's me. Um, I, uh, um, you know, when I think about, you know, clinical research, I, I, it's it's really a – um, you know, you kind of think of it as opposed to, you know, basic science. I, in my mind, in, in when I when I think of basic science, I think of I think of lab, you know, a bench, uh, pipetting, you know, mice, you know, that kind of uh, <laughs> you know test tubes, you know, right. PCR kind of machines, like that's kind of thing I think of. Um, and it seems really far away from from the clinic, although you know I think you can make a good career out of doing that. Um, but you know, clinical research, you think, oh, oh yeah, well, that's got a lot of applicability to what I do every day, and it's, it seems like it's much more direct. And I, I think that's very true. But um, I also think that there's pieces of it that that are just as rigorous and just as difficult to perform uh, and take just as long as basic science research. It kind of depends on what you want, what you want to do. Um, so anyway, so kind of my thoughts about clinical research are, I, I think that there are uh, you know various ways. You know, to do it. Um, there's the traditional, I think, surgical way, which is to take a surgical problem, whatever it may be, whether it be a, a trauma issue or acute care surgical issue, um, or something in the ICU, uh, and uh, and then create, uh, you know, study that. So, you know, if you use my my career, one of the things I've looked at is spleens, because I think it's something that. Per- Flexes a lot of trauma surgeons, and you know it's an interesting clinical entity, and um, could influence the care of a uh, you know of a lot of patients if uh, you're able to make a contribution in that area. And so, I think that you know studying some clinical entity like that, so doing a case series or here's our here's the way we take care of spleens in you know Indiana or in you know wherever you may be, and here's our outcomes. You know people can glean a lot of information from that and. Um, particularly if you do it maybe a little differently than than the rest of the country does, and they can learn from that. So I think that that's sort of one way, and that's a lot of what we see at presentations, you know, at EAST or the AAST, for example. You know, those are the at our trauma meetings. That's kind of what we see a lot of. Um, there, I think, uh, are, you know, 
prospective studies, so where and multi-institutional studies kind of could be put on top of that. So where you say, okay, well, I'm interested in this patient population, and now I want to accrue them and follow them over time prospectively, meaning that you need to get consent from them. You're going to have various time points. You're going to have automatic follow-ups, and that's you know another type of what I think is clinical research. Um, takes a little more time to do, but it's certainly you know provides a lot of literature. And then. Uh, you know, randomized controlled trials are kind of an offshoot of that too. I think you know where you're com just comparing two different things, but there are certain skill sets that you got to develop for any one of these types of uh, types of research. And then, you know, clinical another area of clinical research, and I think certainly one that's growing. Uh, two two big areas. One is uh, health services research, which I think encompasses um, how quality and and policy sort of intersect at the patient. Um, at the patient level, so kind of population health type issues. Um, how do we take care of a whole population of surgical patients? What's the best thing to do for a, a population? Um, and for the resources that we have, how do we distribute those appropriately? Those are the kinds of questions, I think, from a health services research uh, standpoint that people can ask. Um, and then when you think of outcomes, you know, think of things that are relevant for a patient, like their quality of life, their functional ability, um, and the types of things that you can do to help modify that in the post-injury or post-operative period, or even doing things like prehab and trying to re reduce the amount of complications. Those, all those things, I, I would say, are all clinical research and really, I think, resonate with with a lot of with a lot of surgeons. And so, beyond promotion and tenure, of course, why is research important for our field of trauma? Well. You know, I think uh, I think about it a lot. You know, why the heck am I doing this? And um, you know, it, it seems like it's sometimes it feels like it's extra work, or it's hard, or you fail, you know, here and there, and you wonder, well, why the heck am I doing it? And um, yeah, I think if you look back at, at surgical history, you know, it's part of our culture. I mean, it's what we do. We learn from our mistakes. We we you know we have M and M M and M, uh, and we. We, we learn from the things that we've done in the past, and we try not to repeat errors. And the same thing goes for research. I mean, I think that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make the next time we see a patient a little bit better than the than the previous time. And, and I think we all have a responsibility, not just to our patients, but to our career in general, and particularly if you're in academic surgery, to contribute a little bit to that to that mission and to help you know leave surgery a little better than when we than when we found it. And research is a great way to contribute. It's not probably not the only way, but it's a it's a it's a great way to do that. And you know, for me personally, I thought about you know I can impact one person at a time by operating on them and, and helping them and saving their life or or influencing their life or making their quality of life a little better, um, and hopefully not hurting them uh, in the process. But I could if I make a change or I discover something from a research perspective, it might have the opportunity to affect hundreds of thousands of people and may have the opportunity to leave a big footprint even long after I'm gone and not practicing surgery anymore. And so, you know, that's to me is a, a huge motivating factor. What role does EAST play in research efforts within the trauma community? Well, you know, when I, gosh, when I think about EAST, I think about, you know, camaraderie, I think about you know, mentorship, I think about, you know, opportunity for, you know, young people to get involved in, in, in an organization and kind of see how it runs, um, opportunities for, 
you know, getting involved in multi-center trials, collaboration. Um, there's a lot of things that I think East does that allow you to to engage and and sort of practice, you know. And and I think the other thing about East that I've found is, you know, really great is um, it's very innovative and open to ideas. So if you have a really good idea, it'll bubble to the top and um, pretty quickly, like maybe even quicker than you would anticipate. And uh, <laughs> And um, and then the next thing you know, you're running with it. And I think it's a great, I think that's a great opportunity for people to take something and uh, you know, and just run with it. Um, and then you're given enough leeway to let it happen. And these are you know leaders in the field of surgery, or and certainly not current leaders and and certainly future leaders, who are you know there interacting with you and giving you opportunities to to you know do research or present your data, to collaborate with. To bounce ideas off of informally or formally. I mean, these are all, um, you know, great opportunities. So. All right. So let's say that I'm a junior faculty member about to start or just starting my first job. What are some key first steps I should take at my institution to become academically productive through research? Well, I mean, I think it, you know, it kind of depends on, you know, where you are. And what you want to do. So I'm assuming I'm going to make an assumption here that you've kind of already, you know, said, hey, I'm really kind of interested in research, but I really don't have any clue about what to do from there. Like I know I want to get involved, but I don't really know, you know, a lot about it. Maybe you don't have an advanced degree, or maybe you didn't do research and and you know a lot of research and as a resident. And so um, I think there's a couple of things that to do. Um, first of all, is you know you got to learn the blocking and tackling. Is what I, you know, kind of how I put it. Um, you've got to learn, you know, how to write an abstract, how to how to set up a design and design a study, what would be interesting to study, you know, how do you analyze the data, how do you then write it up and present it in a way that, you know, make it interesting to other people to read, and um, and uh, you know, ultimately down the road you may want to figure out well how, how do I make it sound like I want to get you know if you want to get funding you know how do I make it sound how do I make this idea sound really interesting and compelling and enough to have somebody give you you know ten thousand hundred thousand five hundred thousand a million dollars you know to do the research um, you've got to make it sound compelling and and make it make it be compelling enough to them to want to fund you so I think that there's all sorts of things that you have to learn and it's hard to do that all by yourself. Um, so, um, you know, I think there's different ways but to do it. But first of all, you have to have an interest and a drive. And um, once you have that, then I think you have to have uh, some mentors. And um, they can come, like, you know, they can be in your division or in your section or in your department. Um, in my case, you know, I had, I had that and sought it out. But when... When those mentors weren't able to fulfill a role that I needed, um, I went and found others. I, I knocked on hundreds of doors, sent emails to people just out of the blue, called them up, um, people that were working in a field that I was interested in that um, were in the same city and had, might be able to connect me with someone else. And I just, you know, some of those things worked out okay, and some of them, you know, I never got an email back or I never got a phone call back, but... Um, I think you have to be aggressive and and go out there and and and, and ask. Uh, more often than not, I got tons of help um, and a lot of ideas, and um, 
found some really good people that way to work with. And that really helped me. If I hadn't have done that, I would have been sort of struggling by myself, you know, sitting there wondering, oh, well, how the heck am I going to do this? Or how the heck do you write a, you know, an NIH grant? Or, I, you know, I had no idea how to do it. So I had to reach out to people. And that's another thing that, you know, for example, like East can help you with. You know, you, there are people in East that have written them. You know, I've shared my grant with people and talked to them about what to do. And um, same thing goes with papers or your ideas. I mean, you know, just the opportunity to do that is, is uh, you know, you've got to take advantage of it, uh, particularly if you're a young person. And the second thing is, you know, not being – another thing is not being afraid to fail because um, you're going to fail. That's, you know, probably the biggest thing that I find about research is just, you know, a lot of things just don't pan out like you think they will. You put an effort into it, and it just doesn't work. So you have to have uh, various irons in the fire. You know, you're not sure which one's going to actually pan out and work. And um, so I try to work on three or four things at the same time. And because uh, um, I'm not, again, I'm not sure which things are going to pan out. So if I put all my eggs in one basket and it doesn't work out, then that's, you know, going to be a problem for me from a research perspective. So I'd rather, you know, have three or four things running that may or may not be related, but most often are. And um, and one or two of them may pop out to be a great idea and something may actually come of it. Um, but I've gotten plenty of rejections, and I suspect I'm going to get plenty more. And um, the idea is just not to stay down or not let it keep you down. Just say, in fact, for me, if somebody tells me, oh, you can't do that, or I don't see how you, that's going to work for you, or, or you're never going to get funded or whatever, I go, oh, yeah? Well, I'll show you. <laughs> and, uh, I'm going to do it, and um, you know, no matter what it takes. And so you know, that's kind of the way I've, I've looked at it over the years. Um, and I think so, anyways, perseverance, you know, being relentless and not stopping you know, when, you get, when you get a rejection of some sort, whether it be from a paper or from a meeting or whatever. It doesn't mean your idea is bad. It just means that those people didn't understand how good an idea it was. It's kind of how you have to think about it, I think. Um, and, you know, maybe you just didn't do a good enough job of explaining how great a study it was or how good an idea it is. And you just have to go back to the drawing board. But um, so looking for mentors, not being being aggressive, taking control of your career. You know, nobody's going to do it for you. You're going to have to do it. You know, people can make suggestions, but ultimately you're going to be the one that are gonna, is going to have to actually go knock on the door, send the email make the call. Um, and I'd say just don't be afraid to do it. Um, you know, anytime people have asked me for help, I'm more than willing to help them. And um, I think you'd find that to be true for a lot of people in, in East or in, in, in surgery in general. Um, and the other piece of that is don't be afraid to look outside of surgery to find people. There are people, basic scientists that you can collaborate with. There are social scientists that would love to talk to surgeons. Um, there are you know, people outside of the realm, engineers, um, all sorts of people to uh, to talk with. Computer scientists now that we have, you know, electronic medical records um, that are just dying to interact and, and work with a surgeon and or a clinician. And so just finding those people and setting yourself up, you know, go to their departmental meetings, you know, email them, say, hey, look, you know, I'm really interested in this. Or go to their talks or, um, you know, Anything you can do to expose yourself to those people, um, spend the extra hour it takes to go to a meeting. You know, maybe it'll be a flop, but it may not be. You may meet someone there who can, you know, who you'll partner with, and then you'll, 
you know, the next thing you know, you've got three or four papers out of it. I mean, that's that's how you do it. Um, being open, being relentless about it, pursuit of it, and and you know, just creating opportunities for yourself. Um, that's how I kind of see it, and you just can't be afraid to do it. Well, and along those lines too, in terms of enlisting outside mentorship and outside support. Are you aware of any organized resources available to help with project design? In other words, if I come up with an idea, I just went to the recent, you know, the recent East meeting, and I've got a project idea. How do I find out if my idea is worth pursuing or even feasible at my institution? Yeah, I mean, so, well, you know, at Indiana University, there there is something that exists. Yes, right. There so, are. <laughs> we do so, have resources. Yeah, so I mean, it didn't exist before, and that kind of was born out of, you know, my frustration with, with that, you know, thinking, well, gosh, you know, there's all these great ideas that just never get off the ground because the people don't have the skill set in order to be able to to do it, and it's not their fault; they just didn't, they just don't have it. And um, so, why don't we, you know, help them? And uh, so, you know, that was the basis of uh, Center for Outcomes Research and Surgery here at Indiana was to help, you know, the busy surgeon and break down the barriers to doing to, to doing research because um, it, it is hard for a busy surgeon to do it um, and devote the time and get all the skill sets that they need in order to make it go. Um, but, uh, you know, nationally, if you think about it, um, you know, you have to look around. Um, you know, uh, either you get it yourself, so you learn it yourself, so you can do it yourself um, and get a master's degree in biostatistics or you – are you or clinical investigation or whatever the or and the master's in public health or go go on and get a PhD like you know like Elliot Hout did I mean there's all sorts of things you can do, um, and to learn it yourself. But if you don't have that desire, don't want to, or don't have the time to do it, or don't want to, that's not the route you want to take. Um, I think you can look within your university. There's a, there's usually a group of people who are doing you know um, higher level sort of outcomes type research. They may be in the Department of Medicine. They may be in preventive medicine. They may be in the nursing school. They may be somewhere else. Um, but they're probably there. And that the, the I would hook up with them. And once you hook up with them, then they can open doors for you and, and resources for you. That's how I did it in, in Memphis in sort of a place that didn't have anything. It was sort of, and the department was in some ways a little, you know, resource poor and, and in terms of uh, support, we kind of had to build it ourselves, and that's kind of that's what we did. Um, it'd be nice if there, were, you know, were a national way to do that for surgeons, but I, I, you know, that doesn't exist as we speak. But um, but I think it'd be something that, you know, certainly, you know, would be a good thing for people to have uh, uh, to look, you know, to have for, on a national basis if, if we could figure out how to do it. And I know that you have a master's in public health. How did you decide to pursue this degree, and how has this influenced your academic career? Um, sure. Well, I remember, uh, you know, I, d I did a couple of years of basic science research and, and um, during my residency, which I really enjoyed. I mean, I, turned a, I learned a lot about the mucosal immune system, and but really what I learned was how academic medicine and academic surgery in particular worked. You know, the mechanics of writing an abstract, the mechanics of writing a paper, how you present something and make a compelling story out of it, you know, how to think about your data, what the next step is, that kind of thing. So I learned a lot about that and a lot about research in general. But I realized also that I, I didn't – that's not kind of 
the kind of research I wanted to do. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not what I wanted to do. And um, as I started thinking about it, I thought, well, what are the things I want to do? Well, I'm interested in, you know, leaving a big footprint, you know, quality, outcomes after injury. Those are the types of things I'm interested in. Well, what do I need in order to do that? Well, I need to understand how populations work. And, um, you know, what's the basic science of population health? Well, that's epidemiology. So, um, so I looked around and I thought, well, that's what I need to do. I need to get a master's in public health, uh, specializing in epidemiology, um, in order to, to, you know, build that research career. Because I wanted to be able to understand it and I wanted to be able to work in both worlds, the clinical world and in that, and then in the, the epidemiology biostatistics world. I wanted to be able to speak both languages, even if I would, didn't necessarily do it myself, that I wanted to be able to talk to a statistician and be able to say, or an epidemiologist, and be able to say, well, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Here's what I'm saying, and try to translate between the two things. But I needed that knowledge. So um, so that's why I decided to get an MPH. And as I was thinking about you know, whether or not I should do it or not, I, I asked a few people, and one of the people I asked, you know, what they thought about it was Anthony Meyer, who was the chair at North Carolina where I was doing my fellowship. And um, and he had some really good advice, and I think it's very true. He's like, it's not the degree that makes you. It's what you do with it that makes you. And, um, you know, a good researcher. Um, and so getting a degree is not going to magically, you know, make you – be a researcher or make you understand. Um, it's just a tool to get there, and um, it needs to fill a need for you. And so if it's not filling a need for you, and the extra knowledge is just going to be some letters after your name and not really going to mean anything from a day-to-day -day basis for you, then it may not be the best route to go. It may just be a waste of time, but if you're going to use it and, and you know, and money, um, but if you're going to be, if you're going to use it, um, and really, you know, have a plan, then I would say, don't, you know, jump in with all your feet, um, your hands, your head, everything. <laughs> Just jump right in. I mean, because you got to be in 100% and um, to learn the things that you need to learn from it. And, um, you know, it's a lot different than going to medical school. I mean, I found, you know, doing the Master's in Public Health, I mean, I loved it. It was really challenging, but it was, it was a lot different than medical school. It wasn't the same type of training. And, um, you know, I found it relatively straightforward to go to school and, and, and work. I mean, I basically did both full-time, and it was, you know, because I didn't really care about the grades necessarily. I just cared to learn the things that I needed to learn, and that was really, you know, that was great. All right. So turning the the topics a little bit, so for our division – for our audience members who are division chiefs or serve in other leadership roles at their institutions, what advice would you give to increase productivity within their group? You know, how do you achieve buy-in and probably more importantly, follow-through from your faculty? Yeah, you know, I think that's a that could be a, a tough one. Um, if people don't buy in, you know, I think you, everybody has to buy in and. And I'm only thinking from my perspective, and, and, you know, a lot of people have different challenges and things like that, and, um, you know, in leadership roles, and, and they have constraints that, you know, may or may not be something that can change, you know, or at least or even change on a dime. But if I were thinking about, well, what would I want to do, um, you know, I'd want to make sure I hired the right people. And that doesn't mean everybody has to be, you know, a star researcher. In fact, I think that's not 
really what you want to do. Um, I think everybody has a talent, and you need to utilize those talents as a group and um, and trying to find everybody's niche. Um, so finding the right people, um, finding a niche for those people to, to things that they can excel in and be you know be good at, whether it be an area of research or whatever. But everybody's got to contribute to the overall goal. Um, which would be to be academically productive as a group and to be um to be you know clinically sound and take good care of patients and uh uh to make sure that we don't you know overburden any one person i mean I think those are all things that I think are our goal, and everybody has to work towards those goals um, and everybody needs to contribute so if somebody in the group has a study, you know everybody needs to try to help out with that you know to recruit patients for it or to help you know, data gather or, you know, spend, you know, even if it's just getting data on 10 patients, you know, and plug it into a computer or doing the analysis or coming up with the ideas or whatever their strength may be, you know, everybody contributing is, is I think, important. So that's hiring the right people, uh, getting the, everybody in the right spot and doing the things that they ought to do. So that would be number one. And number two, I think creating the space for them to do it. So... Um, whether it means rearranging schedules or, um, you know, giving people some devoted time to research somehow. Um, I think that's important. You need to create the space for that to happen because it, it doesn't – I mean, you can do it in your, quote, spare time. But I think uh, if you can somehow create a little time in the schedule for people to do that and then have the expectation be that you do it. And that, you know, research time isn't necessarily thought of as, uh, oh, that's my free time. It's not free. You're just doing research. And and sometimes research is hard, and it takes a lot of time and effort. So you need to devote it to it. Um, and you need to understand that. And uh, then creating an expectation on the back end. Um, you know, it's just not acceptable to miss an abstract deadline. You know, it's just not. So, um, and having an expectation that, yes, you're going to contribute to the you know, you may not be the first author, but you're gonna you're gonna contribute to the research output and academic productivity of our group, and having that expectation be clear, and um, and everybody's responsible for making sure that that happens, and um, and then lastly, I think making sure that people have the resources to do it. So not just the time, but the actual resources. So, um, and that's your your job, I think, as a boss or a division chief for for your faculty, particularly young ones is to create opportunities for them. So you go out and you knock on doors and you meet people and you go to meetings and you talk to folks. And when you when you when somebody mentions an idea to you or you think this would be a good connection, you encourage your faculty member to connect with, with the person from outside and go talk to them and see what comes of it and encourage them to spend the time necessary and give them the resources that they need if you're able um, to allow that to happen. You know, if if it's you know, access to a statistician or, um, you know, getting a big database or opening a door for them. I mean, I think those are the types of things that you need to do and be a, and be just as aggressive as you expect your your younger, you know, faculty to be and, and seeking out opportunities for them. What are, what are the biggest mistakes you see that faculty make in regards to research? Do you see a common theme, something you kind of see over and over again? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think people give up too soon. They just give up, you know, because it is hard. It takes time. It 
you know, it seems like it's extra work. You do get a lot of rejections. I mean, you know, the, the list of abstracts that have been rejected and papers that have been rejected, I think, is higher than the number of the publications that I actually have. I mean, it's obviously a lot. You know, that's just the way it's going to be. So, you know, for every one, I may have, you know, had like three or four failures. And unless you can weather that and, and you know, keep pushing along, then you're, you know, you, you, I, I just see people giving up. You know, they're really good. They have great ideas. They just give up, and um, and I think that that's probably the biggest thing that I see. So just having the mental toughness to be able to to push through that, and the desire. I mean, sometimes folks just don't want to put the effort into it. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we just need to figure out a way for them to contribute. And it may not be in leading their own study. Maybe they just help out, which is fine. You know, there's no trouble with that. You just need to find a way, but I, I think that that's what I see most people do. You know, they get a paper back, you know, they, they get it on at a meeting, and then they get the revisions back, and they never resubmit. Or they, you know, get rejected from one journal, and then they don't go on and try to submit it to another place. Or they don't gather more data to try to make it, you know, a better paper. Um, I mean, I think that those are the types of things that I see people fail at, and most of that is just not, you know, just not putting forth the effort that I think it takes to, you know, to see it through to the end, I guess. And and um, it 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 they just give up a little too soon. They probably would be successful. It's just they they give up. And I think the other thing is, there a lot of people just don't have the resources, you know, or the fundamental knowledge that they need in order to do it. You know, they just don't have a mentor or never had somebody to tell them, hey, you know, here's how you write an abstract. Here's how you make it sound good. You know, here's how you write an introduction to a paper. Here's how you, here's what you do um, in order to make that happen. And, uh, you know, they just don't have access to that. And that's where organizations, I think, like East can step in and, and provide opportunities for that, um, for people to have those types of mentorship if they can't find it in their own institution. Sure. Well, in taking the 30,000-foot view, what is the main message or piece of advice that you would like to give our audience today about how to get started and be productive in research? Well, I mean, if you're if you're looking at the beginning of your career and you're going, gosh, I, or, you know, no matter where you are, I guess, and you're going, wow, I'd really like to be involved in research, um, you know, first of all, you know, you've got to, I think, um, I mean, you have to have ideas first. I mean, and every surgeon has ideas, right? They can, and they can come from anywhere. They can come from, like, the bedside, the variations in care. They could be big clinical questions that you have or, or maybe you, you hear some of my best ideas come from M&M or Grand Rounds. Um, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, that would be a great idea for a study. You know, that's a controversial topic. Let's look into seeing about that. Now, some of those things pan out. Sometimes they don't, but you have to have ideas. Um you got to keep coming back to them. Maybe right now is not the right time to test it, but maybe later is. And so I write them down. And people joke about my, who know me well, joke about my, uh, like I'll write down things on little pieces of paper and keep them with me. And I'm notorious for doing it on napkins because um, they're, they're constantly around, so you can always pick them up and write down on something on them. And, uh, you know, now I'll put it in my phone so I'd have fewer napkins running around. But I've got a list of ideas that I just, I keep coming back to them, like, oh yeah, you know, that's now's not the right time. We need more patience, you know, or something. 
whatever it may be. But um, I have a lot of ideas, and I think that writing them down is key. You know, you got to have them someplace. So make a document, do something, so you can keep track of them. But then you need a forum, I think, for fleshing them out. So like you need, um, you know, informal and formal forums to do that. Um, most often it's going to be an informal thing. Hey, what do you think about blah? Well, how can we study this? You know, somebody you respect or another partner or one of your peers. You know, let's think about that. And then, you know, go into, um, you know, PubMed and just looking to see what's already been studied on it. You know, those are types of things you can do to help flesh the idea out a little more. And then, um, and then the next step, I guess, would be, you know, to start mapping out a plan. You know, what are you going to, and what are the questions here? You know, there's hardly ever just one thing. You know, it's usually a lot of stuff. And um, the other piece of advice I have is, like, you want to maximize the output but minimize the input. So don't overwork. If the data already exists, figure out a way to go get it. Don't 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 make it hard. Don't duplicate the effort. I see people, you know, a lot of times I see folks like, uh, you know, oh, I need to calculate the ISS on these patients and whatever. The trauma registry does that. Let, you know, figure out how to get them to work with you and for you to get that information or, if, you know, something simple, you know, or if you can ex extract it from the electronic medical record somehow or if the data set already exists somewhere else, you know, get a hold of it and um, and then push it, you know, push it forward. Um, you know, somebody has to be in charge of the idea and has to drive it. So once you kind of map out your plan, somebody's got to drive that idea and, um, you know, if if you leave it to a resident or medical student to drive it, you know, only an exceptional one is probably going to be able to carry it out. You're actually going to have to actually push. Um, and then if you have partners and you have a study, you know, getting them on the same page with you and having them help you, getting them involved in the study, talking excitedly about it with them and getting them excited about it too to help you out. Um, and then I think, you know, having accountability mostly to yourself, you know, not letting it be acceptable to miss a deadline. You know, making sure you do it. You know, make sure you get the work done, and um, and you know, creating that sort of self accountability will help move your research forward. So, um, in addition to the things that I talked about earlier about finding mentors, you know, being willing to knock on doors, finding collaborators, um, and I think if you're going to build, you know, uh, like a research plan. Um, I think that there's a lot of paradigms for that. You can pick a disease process. Um, you know, like if you think, a, you know, once you're a vascular injury, I mean, you think, you know, Denver and Memphis, you know, and Dr. Fabian in Memphis. You know, out, you can look at an outcome, um, like a death or failure to rescue might be one. You can look at a tool. So, like, you know, for example, Dr. Riziki and the FAST or um, now TEG, you know, is, uh, people are using that. That's a tool that people are researching. Um, you can team up with a PhD. You can look at protocol-driven research so uh, or quality-based research. Um, so you develop a, a, a you know, protocol and then you just study it and study the outcomes. Or you can you know, develop skills like working with large databases. So try to just pick a path that's going to be good for you and then just you know follow it. On behalf of the East Careers and Trauma Committee, I would like to thank you, Dr. Zarzar, for taking time to speak with us today. I am Jamie Coleman, and I hope you enjoyed the program. When you find a moment of time, please visit the East website at www.east.org for more East CareerCast 
and other valuable information. Ben, thank you so much for doing this. You know, one thing that you touched on um, that I, kind of sparked me is, you know, you mentioned working with medical students and residents. Um, you know, do you have any advice on that in terms of, again, kind of going through the whole follow-through aspect? Yeah. You know, I, I think, um, I think you know, and this will, I don't know if it will sound good or bad exactly, but I've, over the years I've found that, um, you know, uh, you can put a lot of effort into helping a medical student or a resident do a project. Um, and when in reality it would be a lot easier if you just did it yourself. So I think realizing that it's going to take some effort to help them and it's not just going to materialize. I mean, it's going to be the rare person that's not going to need any help or very little help. You're going to have to help them. So, and most often than not, it's just like doing a case in the operating room. You know, you could do it faster, but, you know, you, you if you're teaching somebody how to do it, it takes a little longer. And uh, so being ready for that, I, I think I anticipated something different than, than, you know, when I first started working with folks. Um, so that's, you know, number one. So you know it's hard at the beginning going to take more time. And then there are, you know, various levels of commitment from the person. So, um, I mean, I mean, you know, you know, Jamie, you know, you know me, I have high expectations of myself and I have high expectations of the people around me. So, um, yes. so yes, if, I do. <laughs> if I don't, uh, if I don't, um, you know, I, I found that, so that requires like a certain type of person to work with me. And, um, so what I do is like now I create like a little barrier. So, and I figure if they can jump over this barrier, that they're probably going to work hard enough on the project to make it, you know, worth my while. Because there, there are some people that are just kind of interested in doing quote research, and they're not actually interested in actually doing the research. You know, maybe they're interested in getting the name of public. I don't know what they're interested in. They want to dabble or whatever it is. I don't, I don't know. But now what I do is I say, you know, I have a whole process, and. uh um, part of the process is coming up with the idea, so I'll let them kind of figure out what they're interested in, and then I figure out what we have available that they could work on, and we come up with a mutual goal. You know, okay, well, this sounds like a great idea. You know, I'll let them pick. And sometimes that happens in one meeting. Sometimes it happens in a different time. So that's the first conversation. Then after we figure out, you know, what it is that they want to get out of it and what it is that we have available for them and what they want to do, then I make them, you know, do a PubMed search and uh, see what the recent literature are on, whatever it may be, and come up with a few hypotheses. And they have to write a page, one page, uh, basically, you know, kind of almost like a specific games page. You know, it's not exactly what it is. I let it take, you know, I, I give them like a little, you know, one-minute spiel on what it should look like. But, but they, uh, so it makes them think about it. And if I get that back, and it looks, you know, relatively, it doesn't have to be perfect. It's fine. But usually, if I get that back then it's good. You know, they're going to be somebody I can work with and that I know will do the work and is intellectually curious and, uh, you know, really wants to do it nine times out of ten. And um, if they don't get it back to me, I don't ever ask them for it. I, I say, hey, I want this in a week, and if I don't get it, I don't ask them. And I think that's a good and, idea, you know, to help kind of, it sounds terrible, but in a sense, you know, kind of select then who really actually has the, initiative and the 
intellectual curiosity, you know, that really was a, a big part of the theme of what you were saying earlier that has to exist in order to get this done. Yeah, you know, my, you know, just, and I said, yeah, I already know going into it, it's going to, you know, be more time for me and more effort, and I don't mind doing that. But on the flip side, I want somebody on the other end that's going to contribute, you know, and not be a passive, you know, me tell them everything, every step along the way. I want them to take a little ownership of it and um, and learn something from it. So, because that makes it worth my while, you know, to teach somebody something. And um, rather than just having them go, you know, gather the data for me. I mean, you right. know, frankly, I, mean, I, I think there's a role for that if they want to do that, if people want to do that. But for me, it, uh, I'd rather teach the per- person, you know, how to the process and, and, um, and devote my time to that. Right. Uh, and so that's what I... That's what I do. I help them, you know, design the database. I help them, you know, with the statistical analysis. I help them, you know, do it. So once they jump over that hurdle, they have a, you know, access to me, you know, 100%. And I'll help them, you know, get the paper on, get it presented, and get it published. Um, but if they don't jump over that hoop, I'm not gonna. I I can't devote the time it'll take in order to do that for everybody. So. Um, so I have to kind of have a screening process. No, this was great. And I have to say the only thing I'm disappointed in that you mentioned or did not mention um, was your process of taking a picture of said napkin and then <laughs> potentially texting it to your junior faculty members, yeah. you know, about all your great ideas for them. So yeah. Um, yeah, thank sorry you. About that. <laughs> no, I mean, we enjoy it. It's fun. Um, but, no, thank you again. This was great, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I enjoyed it.